Uh, well, as you know, um, in the days after Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, he uh, spoke to his disciples. He said to Thomas, you have seen Thomas, poor Thomas, who we call Doubting Thomas, even though all the disciples had their doubts, and why wouldn't they? But he said to Thomas, you have seen and believed. Blessed are you. But more blessed are those who will believe, though they do not see. Uh, if you think about uh, um, some of the great Christian preachers of the uh, 20th century, those whom God has given to his church for the church's upbuilding, you might think of Billy Graham, you might think of Martin Lloyd-Jones, I certainly think of John Stott as a man whose ministry has been influential in my life. And John Stott said, the invisibility of God has been a great problem. Jesus said, more blessed are those who will believe though they do not see. That's us. But John Stott said, frankly, the invisibility of God is a problem. It's a problem for believer and unbeliever alike. And uh, as we read scripture, we see so many have extraordinary encounters with God, though they may not actually see him. Moses encounters uh, the Lord in the bush that isn't burning. <laughs> it is burning. It's not burning up though, is it? <laughs> um, uh, Abraham uh, talks with God. The prophets have visions and dreams. The apostles walked alongside the Lord by the Sea of Galilee, in the temple, in Jerusalem. They were there, they saw him and spoke with him and walked with him and ate with him. But the first Christians were called atheists by their pagan uh, neighbours because they had no statue of their God. And so to this day, uh, sceptics will mockingly refer to Christians and their invisible friend in the sky. Well, today uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time in the book of Esther. And it's a book about God's salvation told from the perspective of people who can't see him. The perspective uh, of those who are the... Uh, uh, the worshippers of the unseen God. And that's us too, isn't it? Uh, so we come to Esther in the 5th century BC when Persia is the reigning world superpower. The Jewish people are a minority uh, within the empire. Um, uh, spoiler warning, if you don't know, Esther is the story of how an orphaned Jewish girl rises to become the Queen of Persia and uh, God uses her to save his people from genocide. Um, but this, this story is told from really from our perspective, from the perspective of those who follow a God we can't see. So I've given you an outline which will be of more or less use to you, I think you'll find as the day goes on, but nevertheless, there it is. Uh, and uh, under the first heading there, I've said everything you wanted to know about the book of Esther. Well, not quite. Three things about the book of Esther before we get into the story. 
Uh, as Chris has already pointed out, one of the things for which the book of Esther is well known is that there is not a single reference to God in it. Uh, the name of God does not appear. Uh, he's not mentioned by anyone in the book. No one prays to the Lord or quotes the Bible. There are no references to the promises of God or the covenant with the Lord. He appears to be absent. So as I say, it's a book for us too because we worship an invisible God. But of course the author of scripture has omitted uh, uh, any reference to God for a reason and the reason is this. The God whose name is not mentioned and whose presence is not observed is everywhere at work. God may not be seen and not heard, but that does not mean that he is absent. He may not be seen or heard, but that does not mean he is not active. And on the contrary, he is working out his purpose in all the ordinary and unspectacular details of life. So the book of Esther pictures the life of faith from our side. You see, the Bible often gives us um, God's perspective on what is happening. The, the scriptures often give us God's perspective on what is happening when the people that we read about in scripture don't actually have that perspective. And Esther tells the story from, from their side. Um, uh, the disciples look at the cross of Jesus and are filled naturally with fear and despair. But the scriptures allow us to look at the cross from God's side as the climactic moment in God's plan to redeem the world. The scriptures often give us this privileged view of things from God's perspective. But we don't live that way, do we? We don't view our own lives from God's perspective, do we? But in Esther, so in Esther, uh, we live the story from the human side. We feel the uncertainty, the ambiguity, the risk and the danger. And it's not clear what God is doing or whether he is doing anything at all. So if you've ever wondered where God was in the circumstances of your life and what he was doing, if indeed he was even aware of your circumstances, then Esther is for you and certainly for me. Uh, the second thing to know under that first heading, Esther is historical narrative. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 famously says, all scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training. All scripture is breathed out by God but not all scripture is the same kind of writing. There are letters and poems and parables and laws and histories. And Esther falls into a kind of historical novel category. Many of the details of the account are verifiable by archaeology and uh, external references, for example, to King Xerxes or uh, Ahasuerus, which is why we prefer to call him Xerxes. It's a lot easier, isn't it? Uh, 
we know he had a palace in Susa. Um, is there a picture? Do we have the picture of the palace? Yes, there it is. And here's another. Oh, is that the same one? <laughs> and here's another maybe? Oh, well, there you are. Close up anyway. <laughs> uh, so there's the, there, there, there's the palace. Um, uh, other elements of the story uh, are less able uh, to be confirmed by other sources like the number of people uh, who were killed in chapter 9 uh, or the duration of beauty treatments in chapter 2. We just have to take scripture at face value for that. Uh, but, uh, okay, thank you very much. We can take those away. Uh, but when we, the thing, but what I want to say is that when we read a historical narrative in Scripture, uh, we don't get a series of laws and commands and prohibitions. Esther is not an essay about God or the church or salvation, uh, even though it has things to say about each of those. It's told as a story. So not everything in it, for example, is an example to follow. Uh, And not everything that we read of is something that we are to approve of. Uh, We learn from it as we think about the characters, as we think about their responses to the situations they find themselves in, um, the world that is painted and the outcome of their actions. Uh, So we... Uh, so I hope today it's lovely to be able to do this over, over the course of a day and to be able to speak with one another uh, as the story unfolds. So let's um, uh, join together and, and think about what we learn from seeing these people in these circumstances, paying attention to what Scripture says and doesn't say. And the last thing I want to say under uh, my first heading is that we need to keep thinking about why this story is part of the Christian Bible. Um, It's a much-loved and important story uh, for the Jewish people uh, uh, because, as as the book of Esther explains, it's it's the explanation for their festival of Purim. But for Christians, uh, this story is part of the essential uh, prelude, part of God's overture, Um, to the coming of Jesus, the one who makes the invisible God visible, who secures our deliverance in the most unlikely way. So we want to think, uh, as we spend this time this morning, uh, through this day, we want to think about how the story of Esther helps us to love Jesus better and to understand his grace uh, more deeply. Well, let's get into the story, Um, the display of the king's glory. Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, was king of Persia uh, from 486 to 474 BC. He was the grandson of Cyrus, uh, who conquered Babylon and allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Um, His empire extended, uh, as we're told, from present-day Pakistan, east uh, to Egypt, in North Africa and uh, north to Bulgaria uh, in Europe. In the third year of his reign, he held a great banquet for the male military leaders, princes and nobles of the empire that lasted for 180 days, we're told. And the sole purpose 
Verse 4 says, was to display the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty. A parade of his wealth, uh, like the parades of power that we know of uh, in the, uh, uh, the days of the Soviet Union and the parades through Red Square uh, or uh, Tiananmen Square in Beijing. But this is a parade of wealth. Uh, the lavish surrounds are described, white and blue linen, marble pillars, silver rings, couches of gold, floors of precious stone and wine served in abundance in golden goblets, each one one of a kind. Pity the goldsmiths. <laughs> it's a picture of ostentatious wealth, of extravagant hospitality and unrestrained indulgence and the not-too-subtle message behind all such displays of power, uh, of uh, wealth, is power. Behind the display of such wealth is always the implied message and the one who controls this wealth is one who has immense power. But suddenly things go awry and from a most unexpected quarter. The king in high spirits from the wine, verse 10 says, uh, that means he was drunk, summons his wife, the queen, to appear before the assembled gathering of men who by this time have been drinking for 187 days so that they may look at her. Uh, Queen Vashti refuses to come uh, in response to the king's command and we might imagine why she refused and we might even applaud her willingness, uh, her unwillingness to be made into a public spectacle leered over by the drunken associates of the king. But... The king, who commands 127 provinces and whose wealth has been on display for 180 days, cannot produce his wife. And in an honour culture uh, where respect and reputation is everything, it is immediately declared a national crisis worthy of an emergency cabinet meeting. So the king summons his Prime Minister and nobles to consult with them. The Prime Minister suggests that Vashti should be banished from the King's presence forever, uh, which, without seeming to realise that this seems to be exactly what she wants. The Prime Minister, who is described as understanding the times, uh, a vital skill for a Prime Minister, apparently also has a deep understanding of the female psyche. He's convinced that if the king banishes his wife and replaces her with another king, queen, uh, this is bound to have the effect of making all wives everywhere in the empire respect their husbands. So the king and all the leading men with access to the king agree. So it must be right. The banishment of Vashti requires the selection of a new queen Uh, and chapter 2 makes clear 
that the primary qualification for being queen is beauty, sex appeal. Uh, point two, the search for a queen of beauty. Um, verse one of chapter two says that when the king's fury subsided, he remembered Vashti and what he had decreed about her. Uh, I think there may just be a hint here that having recovered from his hangover, uh, which after 187 days of banqueting must have been substantial, he now realises that he is without a queen. But the laws of the Medes and the Persians cannot be repealed, according to verse 19. So his dresses suggest that young virgins be brought into the palace from every province of the empire and that a queen be sought from among them. The young women are brought to the capital and put in the care of one of the eunuchs uh, in the harem and there they undergo a 12-month beauty treatment before they are taken to the king where he will make use of them for his sexual pleasure as he sees fit. After one night, they are removed to a different harem. They're no longer virgins, so they, are, uh, they join the concubines. In practice, having been used and discarded in one night, they will never be allowed to marry any other man and most likely they will never bear any children to the king. For most of the concubines, their life is over. Perhaps a few will be taken as wives to produce heirs. Just one will be made queen. Well, let me make a couple of observations about this story. Uh, Firstly, the world of Xerxes and Esther, did you notice, is not so different than ours. At the end of the first two chapters, uh, we've been given a picture of life in that world, a world of corrupted power, of ostentatious displays of wealth, of the mixture of sex and politics, of yes-men and the manipulation of political influence, of the exploitation of women and minorities. Thank goodness things aren't like that now. One of the reasons why the biblical worldview deserves the consideration of modern people is that speaking from centuries ago, it consistently reveals patterns of the human heart and of human society that are still everywhere evident. If the scriptures from the standpoint of 3,000 years ago can give an assessment of the human condition that rings true, then why wouldn't it speak directly to our yearnings and needs? It does. The world of the court of King Xerxes is indistinguishable uh, from the world of Dominic Schwartz-Kahn or Silvio Berlusconi. The book of Esther describes a period in the history of God's people when they were in a minority position, interacting with a majority culture that was virtually untouched by the knowledge of God and that was hostile to God's people. 
And if we in Australia have some small window on what that might be like, certainly many Christians in other parts of the world are all too familiar with that situation. Um, uh, as you know, uh, in uh, Egypt and Syria, uh, serious conflict um, has arisen uh, between uh, competing groups of the majority Muslim population in those countries. But in both of those countries, there are ancient communities of Christians. In Egypt, the Copts, some of the oldest Christian communities in the world. Uh, uh, last year, we went to uh, one of our northern neighbours and even in the short time that we were there and the limited interaction we had with people at the churches we visited, we got a sense of the intense pressure that Christian brothers and sisters live under. Um, there is systemic discrimination on racial and religious grounds so that if you are a Christian then your employment opportunities are limited. Your opportunity for promotion is limited. Your opportunity to own and run a business is limited. Uh, your opportunity to access education is limited. When I went to university uh, a thousand years ago, uh, some of my fellow students were Chinese Malaysian Christians who couldn't gain entry into universities in their own country because there was a quota on how many people like them could enter university. So they were studying here. And in that kind of context, every interaction with a local government official, with a business person, with a tradesman, with uh, the uh, civil service, has a sense of pressure and uncertainty about it. And even in Australia, with our Christian heritage, a thoroughgoing biblical worldview, as you know, is increasingly at odds with our own culture. When that happens, how do we respond to that? Compromise? Conflict? Capitulation? Esther raises for us the question of the people of God living in a culture that is ignorant or scornful of God's vision of human flourishing. Um, so that, their world is, that world is not so different to ours. Uh, oh, by the way, in your outline I'm on page two. I didn't know there was a page two. So I'm under section 4.2. The world in our hearts. The presentation of the world according to Xerxes is intended to provoke in us both revulsion and ridicule. The indulgence and the exploitation is ugly. The pomposity and the mental and moral weakness is ludicrous and they are familiar enough in our own world. But we ought to ask too whether they are to be found in our own hearts. 
Are we impressed by displays of wealth? Do we aspire to wealth? Do we seek to associate ourselves or benefit from those who are conspicuously powerful or wealthy? The Persians were obsessed, as we read about them here, with external appearances, with outward beauty. Do we value the opinion of those who are attractive more than of those who are just average? How do we pick our friends, the people we'll associate with, the people we choose to marry? The Persian court is not a one in a million chance, is it? It's just people, being people. But what is typical in the world cannot have any place in the community that is formed around Christ. Uh, Fourthly, I think I said secondly, but I should have said fourthly, thirdly. Anyway, fourthly, (laughs) turning the world upside down. There was once a public display of the glory and majesty of Jesus. It was outside Jerusalem on a hill called the Skull where they crucified him. Before his death, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Father to glorify the Son and the Son to glorify the Father. And lifted up on a cross, Jesus made known God's glory. The goodness and love of his self-sacrifice for those enslaved by pretensions to power and passing physical beauty and gaudy wealth. He died for us. He who is King of kings and Lord of lords laid down his life as a servant and he invites those who are his to his eternal banquet in which we find our deep satisfaction in the knowledge of the love and light of the Son who did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Jesus changes the way we think about what true wealth is, what true beauty is, what true power is and he changes the way we relate to all those things in this life. So he thought about the king's glory, the display of the king's glory, the search for a queen of beauty, the world of Xerxes and Esther. I want to finish by thinking about the hiddenness of the Lord's hand. That's number five on the outline. In the midst of the empire-wide search for a queen, one small Jewish family gets entangled. Mordecai is a descendant of those who had been deported uh, to Babylon during the exile. 
He had a cousin whose Jewish name was Hadassah, but who we know by her Persian name, Esther. She was an orphan, and Mordecai had cared for his cousin since her childhood. Esther is one of the young women caught up in the king's vain and cruel plan to find a new wife. But by the end of the book, uh, we'll hear how Esther's elevation to the position of queen is decisive for the rescue of the Jewish people from a plan to exterminate them from the empire. Though God is not seen or heard in this book, he is working to preserve his people, to bring the Messiah into the world, to fulfil his promise to Abraham, to bring blessing to the world through his descendants. In Esther, God's hand is hidden, but it is not absent. Along the way, neither Esther nor Mordecai have any awareness that God is at work. In fact, they give little evidence of any kind of faith at all. The fact that Mordecai and Esther are in Susa raises the question why they have not returned to Jerusalem because Xerxes' grandfather Cyrus gave the Jewish people in the Persian Empire the freedom to do that. Why are they still in Susa then? Why did they not return to Jerusalem? Have they become so accommodated to the foreign culture that Jerusalem seems like an inconvenience to them? We're told in chapter 2 that Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate which suggests that he has uh, some kind of official role in the city. Has his success and prosperity in the alien culture of Persia made it difficult for him uh, to seek first the kingdom? And why does he counsel Esther twice not to reveal her Jewish identity? Had Esther revealed her identity, almost certainly she would have been excluded from the beauty pageant and the sexual degradation that followed. At the same time, how is it possible for Esther to participate in the selection process? Surely she was filled with fear and revulsion. She was certainly going to break the Lord's law. She slept with a man she wasn't married to and then she married him though he was a pagan. In the first two chapters we're not let into Esther's thought processes at all. She's silent throughout. We can guess how difficult it was for her to work out what the right thing to do was and we can guess at her fear and revulsion at what she had become involved in. The author of scripture makes no assessment of Esther's state of mind or her actions and we shouldn't be too hasty uh, to pass judgment on her. There's no word from the Lord for Esther. She doesn't receive a dream or a vision or a promise to guide her or strengthen her. But neither does she purposefully look to the Lord. She doesn't pray, she doesn't consult scripture. Her actions are ambiguous. Her inner thinking is a secret. I don't know if your actions are ever ambiguous or your thinking about what faithfulness to the Lord means for you. Difficult to work out. 
but the Lord is at work to deliver his people. Esther becomes queen. Even when she becomes queen, she doesn't disclose her Jewishness. And yet it is Esther whom God will use eventually to secure the safety of his people. By the end of the story, the hand of God will be seen at every step along the way. Matthew Henry says of the book of Esther, though the name of God is not in it, the finger of God is, even in the many minute details. And we'll think about this a little bit more later in the day, but here's the point. God is not only at work in mighty acts and visions and miracles. He is at work in the actions of ordinary people in ordinary circumstances. Usually we can hardly see it and even in hindsight we may not see it. But this is God's world and he has a plan for his world. As Ephesians says, to bring everything in heaven and on earth under the headship of his son, Jesus Christ. And God is able to use the drunkenness of kings and the fearfulness and faithlessness of his own people and the wickedness of those who put Jesus to death. God is able to use all that to serve his purpose. And he's able to use your faithfulness though it brings you ridicule or marginalisation. He is able to use your prayer and suffering He is able to use the small decision you make to come to church, to give, to make a phone call, to speak a word of wisdom, to be an agent of grace and kindness and forgiveness. But when our decisions are poor or made from fear or guilt, even then God's purposes are not defeated by our poor choices or our foolishness, or our wickedness. God is not dependent on our obedience and he's not limited by our disobedience. That God uses Esther proves that he is a God of grace. His work in her is not because of her promising beginning It is in spite of her weakness. She does not acknowledge his name before the world. She does not call on his name in danger. She submits to the law of pagans rather than the law of God and yet God will use her. God will change her. God will save her. And God will save his people through her. How can he do that? Because. He is a God of grace. That's what we're singing about when we say he is a God of grace. He welcomes, he uses the undeserving. 
The world says, take your beauty treatment. Work hard to make yourself attractive and maybe one of you will win the prize. But the Lord looks on frightened, guilty, faithless, foolish people and says, live, you are my child. I will make you beautiful. God's silence does not mean he is absent. God's hiddenness does not mean he has abandoned his people. He's working out his purposes and keeping his promises even when it looks like he's nowhere to be seen. Well, we've made a start. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who is at work in details, in coincidences, even in the most awful of circumstances. We thank you that you work in the lives of people like us, morally and spiritually compromised. We thank you that you're not absent, though we cannot see you, or when we do not acknowledge you and we thank you that you've made yourself known in your son the image of the invisible God the exact representation of your being your apostle says in Jesus we have beheld your glory full of grace and truth So we pray, Father, may we see more and more of him that you might make us like him. And we ask it in his name. Amen.